Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Chuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Hey everybody! Okay, so on today's Formosa Files, we're gonna look back at some of the stories we've covered so far in Season 3. So, we try to keep our podcast at between 25 and 30 minutes, but because of that restriction of time, it very often means we're not using a whole bunch of good material that we've uncovered while looking at various stories. And we've got some listener questions and feedback as well, so this is just gonna be a bit of a hop, skip, and a jump around. John, um, what would be any extra info or uh, favorite from a recent episode? The shipwrecking story of the SS President Hoover. Right. Okay. So just to remind listeners, the SS President Hoover was a state-of-the-art luxury cruise ship. It was sailing, or not sailing, it was plying the Trans-Pacific Route. That would be San Francisco to Manila by way of Japan. In 1937... The ship ran aground just off Green Island, a small island to the southeast of Taiwan's main island. And of course, 1937, Taiwan and Green Island were in Japanese colonial possession. The American ship President Hoover was on the last leg off its voyage en route from Kobe in Japan to Manila in the Philippines, at that time a colony of the United States. And Manila was quite a destination back in the day much more glamorous than the city today. Uh, For example, Pan American Airlines had recently started their Trans-Pacific China Clipper service, large four-engine flying boats flying between San Francisco and Manila, island hopping over six days across the huge Pacific. But still, these flights were the exception. Most people traveled by ship, of course. The good old days of leisurely travel by ocean liner. Yeah, um, if you were rich. Yes, if you were rich or if you worked on the ships. My great-grandparents, on my father's side, were two such people. My great-grandfather was a chef on a transatlantic liner, and my great-grandmother was a nurse on one. In fact, she was on the Carpathia, which was the first ship to arrive on the scene after the sinking of the Titanic Oh, that is, as we all know, a ship that sank after hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic Ocean, a ship that was, uh, what was it called? Unsinkable. And that was back in 1912, if I'm right. And as I recall, something like 1,500 people perished. Yes, 1912. And nearly two hours after the Titanic sank, the ocean liner Carpathia arrived on the scene and... uh... My great-grandmother and others uh, rescued survivors and lifeboats, of which there were about 700. Nice job. In the case of the Hoover, the SS President Hoover, there were about 500 passengers on the ship at the time, just half the capacity, and about 300 crew. And happily, nobody died. No jacks, no roses. Yes, a happy ending to this story, but things could have gone really badly. Uh, there could easily have been some deaths, you know, accidents happen. And there could have been an incident between the Japanese and American naval ships. 
Yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. This Green Island incident could have spiraled out of control and actually started World War II, or at least World War II in Asia. So this is December 1937. So Hitler, in April of the following year, he'd be marching or waltzing his way into Austria. But in Asia, 1937, December 1937, the Japanese have launched a full-scale war against China in July. The Japanese are on the outskirts of Nanjing. And at Nanjing, or Nanking at the time, it's the Chinese capital. It's on the Yangtze River. The Japanese bombed the USS Panay. And this creates the Panay incident. December 12th, 1937, a Japanese bombing attack on a U.S. Navy River gunboat, Panay, and a few U.S. commercial ships. Three men were killed, about 45 injured. A gunboat, uh, which was evacuating U.S. personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Nanjing, was sunk. And the very next day marked the end of the Battle of Nanking, and uh, we all know what happened after that. Very unfortunately, the start of the Nanking Massacre. The sinking was probably intentional rather than an accident, but of course, these things are hard to prove. But if another incident had occurred like immediately after, who knows, right? So news of the attack on the USS Panay came through to the Americans in Green Island as they were trying to do their evacuations, and the U.S. destroyers had to get ready for possible hostilities to kick off with Japan. Yeah, the SS President Hoover's story has so many great elements to it. The glamour of 1930s travel, the war in China, the gathering storm clouds of World War II, and it lends itself to some fictional flourishes. There are some really interesting possibilities for a novel or a movie. Yeah, uh, put in a few spies, uh, throw in a romance, have the ship sabotaged to start a war, get a hold of some secret mail carried aboard the ship. Yeah, I can see it would be quite a movie. Eric, any recent episodes that you uh, especially enjoyed? Yeah, the episode on the flag of the Republic of China. More interesting a backstory than you might expect. And because there was a lot to cover, time constraints meant we left uh, a lot of things out. Yeah, like a possible alternative to the current flag, uh, a new flag without so many Chinese associations. Right. Some people might like a return to the only flag of Formosa that's officially existed, the Republic of Formosa Tiger flag. So, once again, a little reminder, the very short-lived Republic of Formosa lasted from roughly late April to May of 1895. It had a pretty cool flag. The flag featured a yellow tiger on a blue background and was known as the Yellow Tiger Flag. Um, there are no tigers in Taiwan, so I'm not exactly sure why they settled on a tiger, except, you know, tigers are cool and uh, fierce and, you know, cool. Eric, you use the word cool a lot. Are you a teenager or have some kind of washed up radio host? Uh, you used to do a Billboard Top 40 show or something? Yeah, dude, I'm, uh, I'm young at heart. But, but am I not right? The tiger flag is cool, yes or no? Yes, it's cool. I love it. So if you were not a fan of the Republic of China and or you supported Taiwan independence, would you like to see the return of the yellow tiger as the flag? So if you get on Wikipedia and you type in something like alternative flags for Taiwan, you're going to find dozens of potential suggested Republic of Taiwan flags. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them are 
very terrible. But there is almost nobody who's interested in reviving the yellow tiger flag. Because the tiger is not Taiwanese. Yeah, well, there's that. But more importantly, that flag is associated with failure. Also, the original Republic of Formosa wasn't declared so much because there was some burning desire for an independent Taiwan, but it was rather a stalling diplomatic strategy. They were trying to convince Western powers to recognize this Formosa, and then the leaders here hoped that eventually they could get returned to China. So not exactly the standard you're going to see a lot of independence people um, supporting. Okay. Yeah. So I can understand that reluctance to go back to that. Yeah. Um, are you a fan of the flag of New Zealand? It's a bit too similar to many other flags, but yeah, I like it. It reflects our British past. You've got the Union Jack as the canton, the top left corner bit, and the blue reflects us being an oceanic nation and four stars for the star constellation, the Southern Cross. Some might say that it looks far too much like the Australian flag, almost interchangeable, um, comparing them side by side, I I have to admit, I see their point. I think you're probably trying to bait me into saying something about my convict brothers. I mean, my Anzac brothers. Uh, but, you know, our cultures and histories are similar, so it's fitting to have similar flags. Okay, but uh, there were some uh, East Australianders who were oh. not so content with that flag. Which is why not so long ago, you guys actually had a referendum on whether or not to change the flag, right? I remember there were a bunch of very interesting designs offered as alternatives. But the final one that people voted yay or nay on, it featured some kind of silver-looking fern. In any case, it was very, very different than the current flag. Correct. Uh, that referendum was defeated. I like that uh, design, but a national flag is not a branding exercise. Are you a fan really? of the Stars and Stripes? We're not selling a product, are we? It needs to be recognizable, though. Like if you're putting milk powder out from New Zealand, you want to see right away that that's a New Zealand product. So in a way, it is a branding exercise. You can put a flag in a kiwi or something like that. <laughs> Good. Oh, so you, you asked me about the Stars and Stripes, right? Okay. So uh, let me just um, recite the Pledge of Allegiance or something. I totally respect what the American flag stands for. I respect its history. I know people have died for it, um, it you know, all of that. But I'm just going to talk from a purely aesthetic viewpoint. I can't say I'm a massive fan. You know, I know it's sacrilege. From a design perspective, it's a bit busy to me. Too many stripes and stars. All right. But it wasn't always like that, was it? No, yeah. Um, like the ROC flag, an early period where there's many contenders for the flag and then you get one adopted and then there's some evolution. The U.S., we had the same thing. There were like 10 varieties before Congress declared it would be 13 stripes for the original 13 colonies and one star for each state. But it took even more years for the U.S. Congress to decide how those stars and stripes would be laid out. So for a while, you had horizontal this, diagonal stripes, stars spread all over the place. There, there was a whole bunch of uh, very dynamic looking versions of the stars and stripes. Our ROC flag story uh, very much involved Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Uh, you got a question from a listener. Yeah. Okay. So here it is. This person wants to know what makes Dr. Sun Yat-sen the father of the Republic of China when he wasn't even in the country when the revolution happened? Did he really organize that much of it to be considered the true guiding light of the anti-Qing revolution? What do you think? How would you answer that? 
he's an overrated figure. Not that heroic a figure if you dig deeply. I'm reminded of a renowned British uh, Chinese author, Zhang Chang. Ah, yes. She wrote that uh, mega hit, Wild Swans and Mao, The Unknown Story. I enjoyed both yeah, of those. That's right. So she was going to write a biography of uh, Sun Yat-sen, but she found the story of the, the Song Sisters was more appealing. So she did just that. She wrote a book called Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. So she just wasn't captivated by uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Oh, but those three women, they, whoa, they are captivating. We'll, we'll get around to discussing them at some point. Just amazing. But, you know, to be fair, Sun's life was fascinating. Many ups and downs, life and death stuff. He was kidnapped in London by the Qing at one point. There were gangsters after him, assassination attempts, revolts, running over to Japan, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yes. So although father of China is overdoing things, he does deserve credit. He helped bring different revolutionaries together. Never an easy thing. I mean, revolutionaries, uh, they've got multiple agendas. By their very nature, they're abrasive personalities, very difficult to manage. And Sun being overseas, yeah, that, that's fine. He's raising support, raising money, which was important. Right. And he died in 1925. He was still not even 60 years old. And as a dead figure, he became very useful for subsequent politicians, Chiang Kai-shek especially. They could use him as a figurehead. And even to this day, both China and Taiwan agree on at least one thing, and it's Sun Yat-sen. Mm -hmm. So another listener question. Mm, this one is going to uh, make you blow your top here, John. Was there ever a time when Taiwan could have stayed in the United Nations in some capacity? Are you sure this isn't your own question disguised as a listener question? No, it's a legitimate question that came up when I was talking with a listener. Okay, but I asked because do you remember? Oh, oh yeah, I suggested Taiwan's story with the UN as a topic for a podcast and we both started doing some reading. Yeah, what a chore. <laughs> I, I just couldn't get into it. You know, resolution to something, this draft resolution draft. Uh, you know, this member nation voting this way, that, that, that through the years, because it came up every year, my brain revolted. <laughs> Your brain was revolting. If something doesn't grab me, my little gray cells refuse to retain the information. So yeah, I did a lot of reading. I don't remember that much. I, my conclusion was uh, we, there wasn't enough interesting material for an episode's worth. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It has to grab you. And it's, it's quite the saga, but just too much. And you're not a huge fan of the United Nations, I know, but, you know, it used to be a big deal, yeah? Okay, you give me your understanding of the ROC leaving the United Nations, which was back in October 1971, and then I'll tell you my understanding, but it will be general. I don't have names, numbers, dates in front of me or in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let me see. The, the 50s and 60s, China is nowhere near um, getting enough recognition around the world. ROC go, go, is go pretty. Back, go, go back to the founding of the United Nations. Wow, the founding of the United Nations. Well, China was one of the. Actually, it was the first to sign the United Nations Charter. Yes, okay, so, so, so October 1945, and mm. there are five important members, permanent members of the Security Council. 
Britain, France, America, the Soviet Union, and the Republic of China. Mm. So then fast forward through the 50s um, to the 70s. I jumped over the 50s. That's when (laughs) the the ROC exercised the one time they used their veto power. Oh, right. The Republic of China, as a member of the Permanent Security Council of the Republic of China on Taiwan at this point, they vetoed, you know, you have the right to veto if you're a permanent member. They vetoed only once, and it was about something rather hilarious. Oh, if they only did it once, it must have been for something very important. <laughs> okay, no, so. no. They vetoed the ascension of Mongolia or the joining of Mongolia into the UN. The Republic of China said nine. Right. It was a, a source of tension between the United States and uh, the ROC because sort of a founding principle of the United Nations is that every nation has the right to join. And Mongolia, sometimes people call it out to Mongolia. It's a, uh, it's a nation. But no, the uh, nationalists, the KMT, they said, that's part of China. So they held out for a very long time. They finally gave way after much pressure. This is 1961. Mongolia finally became a member of the United Nations. So then all through the 60s, as I remember, so you've got the red camp and then you've got the anti-communist camp. And the communists want this one to join. And the so they're like trading, horse trading back and forth during this time. Uh, I think Albania is the one that's sort of bringing it up every year. Oh, the PRC needs to. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> it was Albania. Uh, China should really give Albania some uh, extra um, support because, yeah, they were the ones saying, excuse me, Taiwan is not the China. And they said this repeatedly and repeatedly. That's right. So what happened finally is, as you said, just back and forth, resolution, this resolution, that. Re- but did they have a, a chance, really? Well, over time, little by little, support for Taipei representing China, for the ROC having the, the seat at the UN, it's falling away. They're losing votes. The Americans had an idea. How about dual representation that the PRC and the ROC are both in the UN. That was unacceptable to both China and Taiwan at the time. And as time goes by, it's not going to work. You're not going to get votes for it at the UN. It was mostly American face-saving. Actually, it's politics. So Nixon wants to switch diplomatic relations from Taipei to Beijing, but he doesn't want to have a domestic backlash against him being too weak on the, the commies. So he, he pushes this dual representation thing. So he's not, it's not like he's sold out Taiwan. He's still right. championing them. But it was, it was doomed from the beginning. I want to clear up a few things I hear about the ROC leaving or being kicked out of the United Nations. What was it? Well, on October 25th, when they were voting, they were going through different uh, drafts, voting this and that. Before the final vote, it was a foregone conclusion that the ROC would be expelled. They they left. They they walked out. They said we're leaving, and uh, also they're, they're not paying the thirty million US dollars uh, they owe in arrears. <laughs> nice. But, so th- there's this idea that th- th- there was a possibility of dual membership. Oh, if Chiang Kai-shek hadn't been so stubborn, they could have stayed in the United Nations. Not true. There weren't the votes for them. 
And although Chiang Kai-shek in public was very uh, strongly against sharing anything with the communists, behind closed doors, remember the old man is uh, in his 80s. Chiang Kai-shek's son, Chiang Jingguo, is running things. And he's telling the Americans, no, we can do a deal. Uh, we're happy with deal representation. But the, the Chinese were never going to have it. Uh, all the member states in the United Nations, not numbers uh, sufficient. So it was it was a lost cause. And if you think October 25th, just days before that, Kissinger is on TV walking around Beijing. He's setting up the visit for Nixon. He'd made the secret visit in July, and they had announced that they would visit China. You know, they're at the UN, going to make the vote, and they're seeing the Americans talking about, yeah, we have a pathway to bringing the PRC back on board. So people would like to blame the KMT for how things played out, but it's not really the case. Yeah, it's Albania's fault. Albania! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just a little postscript, uh, you'll be happy to know that Taiwan, as the Republic of China, officially recognized the right of Mongolia as an independent nation in 2002. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's good. it's settled. <laughs> Took a while, Finally, but... Yeah. Okay. A final listener question. In one of your recent encores about the athlete C.K. Yang, you say that he ran under the name Taiwan in the Olympics. So, for a time, Taiwan was somewhat official? Oh, you caught me out. Uh, I need to go through the the Olympics. 52, Helsinki. Both Chinas are allowed to attend. ROC pulls out. Next Olympics, 56. Melbourne, Australia. The ROC attends. Chinese don't want to go. And uh, Taiwan is competing under the name Republic of China. The next Olympics, 1960, when uh, C.K. Young got his wonderful silver. At that time, the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee, said Taiwan would have to compete at Rome, 1960, as Formosa. Well, what an outrageous insult. The Americans said, well, you can't accept that, can you? And uh, the KMT said, well, yeah, normally we wouldn't accept it, but we've got this really good uh, decathlete. He might win something. (laughs) So they swallowed the insult, and uh, yeah, when the opening ceremony, they're walking around and they're holding placards under protest. Uh, and so, what's so beautiful about that is that C.K. Yang was a, an Amis Aboriginal from Taidong. He yes. was truly Formosan, so just yeah. wonderful. Yeah, so next Olympics, which he competed in, uh, 64 Tokyo, the IOC said, oh, this time you've got to do it as Taiwan. So they competed as Taiwan one time. The next time it was uh, Mexico, that was Republic of China, Munich, also Republic of China. Four years later, Montreal, Canada, it was ordered to revert to Taiwan, and humph, it left the Olympics rather than accede again to that horrific demand. Yeah, 76 Olympics in Montreal. Canada's then Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, refused to grant Taiwan's team uh, visas unless it uh, competed as Taiwan or Formosa. It was, this wasn't from the IOC, it was uh, from uh, Canada's PM. Jiang Jingguo refused and uh, they withdrew from the Games. And Taiwan didn't go to Moscow in 1980. And then when it finally returned to the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984, it had its very odd but somehow acceptable title of Chinese Taipei. Yeah, 84, and that's when the uh, PRC came back into the Olympics. 
Yeah, and uh, I've talked to a lot of people that are not super happy with that title, but most people that I talk to say that they would rather compete under that name than not compete at all. Yeah. Uh, before we leave, I wanted to tell people about an exciting new development that is going to be coming very soon. By the end of this month, we're going to have a YouTube channel up. And in the beginning, it's going to be a very modest YouTube channel. There will be maybe five, six, seven videos only, and it's going to grow. It's also going to grow very modestly. But one of the type of videos that we're going to put up there, we're calling them transcript videos. And this is because we've gotten so many emails from people who are using Formosa files as a resource for learning English. So a lot of people who write in say like, I understand 60% or 70 or 80%, but if I could just have some words there, I, I could get a little bit more out of it. So we can't just release transcripts themselves. So we're going to put out a video. You'll hear John and I talking and you'll see the words on the screen. So you could pause it if you needed to. So these are going to be called transcript videos, and we hope they will come in handy for all of you people who have asked for something like that. And we really would appreciate anybody out there who is interested in contributing content for our YouTube channel get a hold of us. We absolutely 100% welcome collaborations of all sorts. So please do email us. Looking for collaborators. All right, Eric. <laughs> yes. Uh, not quizzlings, but collaborators. Special shout out to our listener. Yes, one listener in Albania. Um, no hard feelings on the, uh, the vote to uh, evict the ROC from the United Nations. It's all forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, listeners and listener comments, I should make a couple of little um, other shout outs. Uh, thank you, Virginia, for writing in and saying that she loves the podcast so much so that she's even started studying Mandarin and she's researching moving to Taiwan with her little doggy. That's awesome. You can do that, Virginia. You and Fluff are welcome. We've also heard from other people who have told us very gratifying things like uh, the podcast is their highlight of the week and that just makes John and I melt, doesn't it, John? I wouldn't put it quite like that, but <laughs> yes. Uh... All right. Bye. <laughs>